0: We're gonna be looking at Acts chapter four and in Psalm two, our message is on Psalm two. Is it just turn off? There we go. How are we doing? I mean I could just use this if it's easier. We good? freaks out the system that's cool Um, right we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 and before we read it this is how the first Christians applied Psalm 2 as they as they learned who and meditated and prayed on who Christ was as king it made them a people who were not afraid who were not intimidated even though all the powers of the earth were aligned against them and so Just keep that in mind as we read this, as we read Acts chapter 4, and then we'll read Psalm 2, we'll pray, and we'll get started. So there's Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anas the, the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, This is our sermon text. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Know, Father, sometimes when we pray, it seems, um, it seems insignificant compared to the powers and the nations and the raging and the, the horrors of the things that go on outside of us, and I know um, personally that is, there are things that intimidate me. I know, we know in our head that Jesus is Lord and he is King of Kings and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet... We still are afraid. And so, this morning, as we celebrate the gospel again, as we study your word and seek to hear your voice, I ask that we would see Jesus as our King, who is good, who is all powerful, who makes us safe, and see that he is fighting for us because of the cross, and that we would then face our enemies sin, sorrow, suffering, all these hardships. We would face them with boldness, knowing you are with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question. As you listen to Psalm chapter 2, did it, and this description of God's king that he has put on, on the throne, given all authority in heaven and on earth, to use the New Testament language, did it give you warm fuzzies inside? Right, or, or make you feel like this is somebody who's approachable. I mean, this, this isn't Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. I mean, this is a completely different portrait, I, I think, of a, what we normally think of Jesus as our king. I mean, you've got this statement, the, the, you shall break them, the rebels, all those who rebel against him with a rod of iron and smash them like pottery. It's not, a, it's not a normal revival invitation, right? And yet, as, as the psalm moves from, from plotting against God to, these, to those who plotted against him turning to praising him, you realize that the whole purpose of this psalm is to, so that you would feel safe. Just counterintuitive. It, it's meant to draw you in to trust this king that God has put on his throne. Right, even though his wrath, yes, is quickly kindled. And so we got to talk about these things. And so let's start by asking this kind of question. What kind of king has God put over us? What is the psalmist describing? Right, and the, the very first thing you see right at the end, this is verse 12, it says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all, it's another way of talking about faith. Blessed are those who trust in him. And it's like we said earlier, blessedness is a promise of, of joy, of, of happiness, of security and trust, of knowing that you really are truly safe. And It's, it's kind, of, kind of a holy luck, if you will, knowing that this king who was once against you is now for you. That this is a king who turns plotting into praise, his enemies into loving servants. And so, the very first thing we see, this really is a king that you and I all need. A king who makes us safe. And I think the reason why we, we're terrified of Jesus being sovereign, we're terrified of this kind of king who has a hard edge, who carries a sword, is because part of it is because we live in, in, in the West, we're Americans. I mean, Bob prayed for the refugees this morning who understand firsthand just how horrible the world can be, All right? But the reality for the average Israelite in, in the day when this psalm was written, they could, you could be a farmer out in your fields minding your own business one day, and then your whole family enslaved and you dead the next, as a neighboring king says, I want your farm, I want your town, I want your village. That's the reality they lived in. It happened over and over again to Israel. I mean, that's the whole history of the Old Testament. Um, Really, human history is littered with the bodies, the blood, the sweat, and the tears of victims of other people, other kings, other nations in power plotting. Plotting for their own kingdom and not pursuing God's God's expansion and goodness, right? I mean, here's one author. This is how he describes kings. This is really helpful. he says, there's a darkness in all of us. And beasts, the beast, the monster we have in all of us, we keep chained. And ordinary people have to keep these chains strong because if you let the beast loose, then society is going to turn upon us with a fiery vengeance. But kings, well, who is there to turn on them? So, the chains really are made of straw because it is the curse of kings that they can become monsters, and they invariably do. And all this author's saying is if I go down, and, sorry, Jeff, you were looking at me. If I go down and punch Jeff in the face and we get into a scuffle, the law's there to control the monster inside of us normal people. Society's going to turn on you. But with kings, and in inevitably, they always use their power for their own good and people get hurt. Who's going to hold those atop, at the top accountable? So I'm saying, this is a king we need. The psalmist is saying, there is a king who actually uses his iron rod to discipline, to control, to make you feel safe, to know they're nothing more than pawns in his hand. That God is a king, his Messiah. He's going to hold all the leaders of the world accountable for their rebellion, for their cruelty, for their selfishness. And that's, that's the world we live in. And I know this is bigger than normally we think of when you come to church, right? Um, Psalm 1 makes a lot more sense. Right? We want to pray about getting God's word into our hearts so we live righteous lives. This is much more like God saying, pray, Lord, for his kingdom to come. The kingdom that stretches from sea to sea. And so we need to pray that, right? That the nations rage violently. I can give you statistics. There's a website, I think it's wars, warsintheworld.com or something like that, that tells you all of the conflicts that are going on right now, the reality that we live in, that our brothers and sisters in Christ live in. So for example, there are 27 countries in Africa involved in ongoing military conflict 27 and there's hundred eighty-six different guerrilla warfare groups involved in those conflicts Asia has 16 countries and 151 different groups terrorist like groups Europe has nine countries and 75 different groups the Middle East has eight countries and 218 different groups the Americas have five country and 25 different groups. And so all total, you have 65 countries and 657 groups all at war. And you put all it that together, that's it's at least a third of this world in which we live. And so the fact that we are not at war really is um, a blessedness, a gift. And so here's, here's a big idea, right? This, this psalm is here so that as we would see the evil outside of us, we would see there is a king out there that God has put in authority that we all need, so that we're ready and willing and able to run to him, to pray to him, and trust that he can keep us safe. It's a king we all need. It's a great illustration. I just watched the, the movie The Avengers. The the Marvel Comics movie. And there's a great scene between Loki, the villain, the bad guy who's brought in all these armies from another planet to conquer the Earth. And the Hulk, the big green raging monster. (laughs) And they come into the same room and Loki looks at the Hulk and says, Enough, you are beneath me. I'm a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied. And the Hulk then grabs him by the ankle and whips him back and forth like a rag doll. (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> he's just laying there defeated, smashed like pottery. And the Hulk walks away laughing, puny God. <laughs> That's God's Messiah. <laughs> he's going to do that in the future to all these evil kings. <laughs> he holds them accountable with his iron rod. This is a king we need. All right. Now, we've got to go a little bit further not only is this the king we need, this is the king that God gives us. And the, the king that he gives us really is Jesus. So I want you to see that, that it's not just an Old Testament reality, it's a New Testament reality. That, that this is a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. Because right? here's the perspective of this psalm. That you have one man, an ordinary person with flesh and blood, like you and me, that God has put on a throne in an unimpressive place in the middle of nowhere, in Zion, to stand against the world. And because he stands against the world, all of the people who are with him should feel safe. Right? But we know, right, if, the, if you're back in ancient Israel and you were an ambassador... And you went to the nation of Assyria, which had the reputation for being the most wicked, the most cruel. If you went into the the king and said, you should be afraid because God has put his king in Israel, they would just laugh at you. Because who's Israel? I mean, even in their heyday, it was just one small plot of land in the Middle East. It wasn't Alexander the Great. It wasn't Attila the Hun. It wasn't this worldwide power to be feared. It's actually the other way around that it was the kings of Israel who were afraid. I mean, you can think 2 Kings chapter 18, where the king of Assyria sent a message to the people of Judah in Hebrew so everybody could understand and said, I'm coming. Your king cannot save you. And because of my armies that are going to come and stomp you, your people are going to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. And everyone trembled. And So it's odd, right? I mean, here stands a psalm that is the word of the Lord, that is true, that says if God has his king in Zion, all of his people are safe. How is that possible? It, it really can only be about Jesus. Because what earthly king could stand against evil and oppression? Who was an Israelite? What... What earthly king can justify the full fury of these threats, but also just how grand the promise of being safe is? And so that's why Christians, like we read in Acts chapter 4, they said this psalm has to be about Jesus, as the world itself turned on, on the Son of God, put him on a cross. They raged against God and his anointed. So look, we need this king, and God's graciously given us this king, and his name is Jesus. And it's a gift, I think, for us. Let's talk about some application here. This is in the Psalter. It's the introduction to the prayer book. And so Jesus being king is actually supposed to affect the way you pray. It's supposed to give you a confidence, it's supposed to, um, to wake you up to the reality that you and I are not the center of the universe. Right? So I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Because when I sit down to pray, I'm, to be honest, right? I am so much more aware of my own self, my own needs, my own fears, than of the fact that God has a king on his throne. So Psalm 2 is here kind of to slap us in the face, to throw cold water, to, to wake us up. To that God has a king. He has put him on his throne. And this is someone that actually has the power to listen and to answer. To kind of to expand your vision outside of ourselves to to pray for the world, to pray for his kingdom to come. I mean just stop and take a rough estimate. What percentage of your prayers are about you and your fears and your concerns? And what percentage of your prayers are then about the nations and God's kingdom and justice? And for me, it's, it's pretty small. This just, just pushes back and say both are important. My own holiness, my own relationship with God, but also his big kingdom. That God is setting up a kingdom with Jesus on his throne that's going to stretch from shore to shore. Now, we have a king. We need him. God's given him to us. And I think you're getting this idea, right? This is a king that you want. Because I know when, when the psalmist says this is a king who rules and reigns, who's, who is interested in you, but that he's Lord of lords, on the one hand, we lean in and say, okay, there's someone I need, but we're afraid of him, too. We right? We cringe. Because what if he doesn't accept us? But, but this is, I think there's a reason why, on the one hand, we do want him. Because right? think, of, think of all the stories that go like this. There once was a good king who sat on his throne, and when he was in power, the whole world flourished. People had food on their table. Crime was down. Um, the enemies, the, the, the whole kingdom was safe. You can think of Robin Hood. When King Richard was here, everything was fantastic, but now that the Sheriff of Nottingham is just a, a selfish, arrogant, cruel person, everything's falling apart. But when King Richard returns, that's when everyone's gonna rejoice and celebrate. Think of think of the movie Braveheart. I mean it's not real, it is about kings and kingdoms. Right? William Wallace. He gets a whole people to rise up and say, this king is terrible, but if we have the right king, if we're free, then we'll, then we'll be happy. Um, or even the modern day, I mean, this is the Presbyterian thing to do, to talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Seems like everywhere we go <laughs> at a conference is a good illustration. Right. When the king returns, evil's going to be stomped out. Right. The return of the true king return to Gondor, and the the hands of the king are a healing hands. He's going to make things right again. And the reason, I think, why this part of King Jesus resonates is because etched into our human DNA is this memory trace that there is really a good king, that the stories point to a bigger story. As Tim Keller says, we have this memory trace of a great king, an ancient king who once ruled with power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory, who who shines like the sun in its full brightness in the darkness. That's the king we want. So we have a king we need. God's given us this king, Jesus. This is a king we really want. And that even if you reject this king, if you look for safety in anything or anyone else, you can't avoid the fact that you want a king. Somebody to make you feel safe. I mean, it could be a romantic relationship. I mean, we're American, right? Just think about all the hope and all the fears that go into our next election. And So many people put put all, myself included, if we get the right guy in office, then things are going to go well. We'll get... America will get its glory back. We'll be God's kingdom on earth again, and that's a supernatural kind of hope. The way we idolize and worship celebrities and athletes—I mean, it's all the reflection of this great memory trace that we want somebody in power to make us feel like we're somebody, like we're safe, that he actually has the power to make my life make sense. But they're never really going to have the power to do so. Because to whom has it ever been said, by God, you are my begotten son, and I've given you everything. We need this Jesus. Now, we're seeing you need the king. God's graciously given us this king, and there is a part of us that really wants him, but we've got to see the bad news in the psalm, verses 1 to 3, that everybody here in this room and really, Christians included, still plot against him. Right? We simultaneously lean in and say, I hope this king will, will fight for me. But we also cringe because we know our track record. And we cringe because we know that verses 1 to 3 are not just about kings, it's also about me and you. Because here's the image, right? You've got God and his anointed on one team. And then you have the nations of the earth and their armies noisily assembled against in, in active warfare essentially saying we want to throw off the bonds of this God and say we, we don't want his rule. We don't want him to tell us what to do. And so it's not just the kings who actively plot. right? Kings have armies. They take people like us. And even those in the army raise their fist against God's rule. Say, I don't want you in my life. It's terrifying. So it's not just we need refuge from the evil out there. We do need refuge from this king who says, I'm going to punish evil. Even the evil inside of our hearts that says, I want to cast the bonds that God has put on me. Get rid of them. I mean, It's, it's a... It's an animal, oxen-type image. It's not, it sounds like chains, but it's really about ownership. It's saying, I don't want him to crack the whip and tell me to go when he says go. I mean, This will help. The, the, the word used for plot here, the time spent actively saying, I don't want God to interfere too much in my life. It's the same word used in Psalm 1. Where that's used to describe a person who spends all their time meditating, right, thinking about God's word. So if you put those two together, it's saying that the way the world is divided is into two groups. You've got all these people plotting against God, saying, How do we get him out of our lives? How do we live our lives without him telling us what to do? Or those who are actually saying, How do we get God to interfere in our lives more? By meditating on his word. And so there it is. Are we going to see God's rule or reign as, as good news or bad news? Right. Because every so what I'm trying to say, really, to be blunt, is that everyone loves this king if he's out there, but we hate him when he gets too close. And that's the message of the scripture because nobody, everybody hates this king. Think about the way the New Testament describes Jesus. Everyone who's ever come into direct immediate contact with this God just fell on their face, afraid, trembling, saying, Oh God, don't kill me. Even the Apostle John, someone who, who used to be Jesus' best friend, who would lay his head on Jesus' chest when they were hanging out. Right? No fear there at all, but when you get to Revelation chapter 1, And he sees Jesus in his full glory with his eyes blazing with fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, a voice that thunders like Niagara Falls. He just falls apart. God, don't kill me. When God shows up in the Bible, people don't get warm, fuzzy feelings and write books about it, they're terrified. I mean, this is the king, this is the God who says, everything is under my domain, that not a hair can fall from your head without my saying so. But there is no part of your life where God does not claim ownership and say, you are mine. It's terrifying. This imagery from Psalm 2 is also in Revelation chapter 19, where John said he saw the heaven opened, and behold, there was this white horse. This one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron here's our song and he's going to tread pat, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god almighty and on his robe and on his thigh is the name king of kings and lord of lords he goes out to war this isn't a king you you summoned to be your butler or treat him like a prayer vending machine or a genie in a bottle, right? Or He's not even an option to make you emotionally healthy or a personal preference. This is a king who says that God has given authority and says, you have to submit to me or else. It's a God who makes a squirm. I've stepped on a grape. I don't want to be a grape tread in the wine press of God's fury do you like this God? Do you feel safe around him? I said, this is me. We, we love and hate this king. We live our lives with our fist, raised to heaven. I mean, that's the polite way to put it. I mean, Tim Challey said, we all live our lives saying, I just want to do it my way. Get out of my way. Leave me alone. And that In a real sense, I mean, some of us, this this can be true as well. Even the best of us, the most religious, can use our good deeds to keep this king away by saying, I'm okay, I don't need your help. I don't need someone on a white horse to come rescue me. That was Gandhi. He said, my heart could accept that Jesus was a fantastic man, but I couldn't accept that I needed a savior. God has given us this king that we all need, want, and hate. And we've joined in this military coup against his rule. And so the question is, as we start to to land here, is is how does God respond to people like that? Not just to the kings out there, but to to our mess right here, right now. How does he respond to our plotting alongside the princes and presidents? And you look at verse 4, and it tells us, it says, God laughs. He doesn't laugh at the damage that our selfishness has caused to other people and to ourselves or to the, to the bloodshed that the kings have, have done. He laughs at the arrogance that we as human beings made in the image of God think we have the right to tell him what to do. Right? He laughs the way if my son Jonah, you know, two years old, so it comes up to you and says, I'm going to beat you up. Right? You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way. That kind of laughter. Holding in derision. The kind that says, who are you? You are puny. <laughs> and so this is what God does. He laughs, and then he installs his king and says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so what he does is he installs a king who appears to be a weak nobody on the outside. I mean, Zion was was not a threat. The king of Israel did not look like somebody who could fix the mess that's raging right now in Syria. And so this is what happened is God sent his son. And we read in Matthew chapter 17 where God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You should listen to this king. This is him. And this is what happened, right? That, that just like the nations laughed at the weakness of God's king in Israel, we actually laughed at God's king and said, Who is this guy? How can he, what difference can he make in my life? He came small and insignificant. This is Jesus. But he did give us a glimpse of what it would look like for his rule to invade the earth sickness. In three years, sickness was pretty much wiped out in Palestine. The blind started to see, the deaf could hear. I mean, it was like everywhere Jesus walked, life just sprung up behind him, and even death. He made it seem like just just like taking a nap, where he could speak and say, honey, it's time to get up. That's Mark chapter 5. tears physically wiped away. He actually forgives sins. And the vision you got was this all-powerful king who looked like nobody eating and drinking with sinners like you and me. He was gracious and kind. And yet everybody laughed at him. How can this man be the son of God? And they put him on a cross as those who were enemies, Jew and Gentile, Roman and Israelite plotted to kill him. And he was left all alone to face the full fury of God's wrath on our behalf. And so, don't, this is what I want you to see is as the psalmist points us ahead, is that we had a king who reigned and that he will come again and make all things sad come untrue. This king that calls us in and says, Blessed are those who, who take refuge in him. This is a God who continues to laugh even at, a, even at, our, at our arrogance and evil and wickedness, right? Because the resurrection really is God's laughter at evil. You heard it, right? God used the wicked plans of evil people plotting against him to invite us in, to make him safe, so that we would be forever free from fear of God's anger and justice. But he did that through our plotting. It was his plan all along to use evil, to use the plotting, to put Jesus on his throne to fix the entire mess that we have all made of our lives. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and tired, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is much easier than any of us, any of us can ever imagine. You see it? I mean, grace is God's laughter. That we think we can run away from him. He's all powerful. Where are you going to run? That he pursues us re- relentlessly. Whether you run to him or from him, you can't escape his clutches. But this is a king who dies for you and says, look, I'm trustworthy. Come to me. Rejoicing with trembling sure. What is it? Uh, C.S. Lewis in Narnia, who says, talks about, you know, Aslan. Sounds terrifying. Is he safe? Of course not. But he's good. This is the king of Psalm 2. So, in conclusion, if this king is for you, who really does have all the power, all authority in heaven on earth given to him, if the cosmos are in his hands, if, if evil kings are nothing more than a drop in the bucket, just puppets, pawns, and if he really has forgiven all of your sin and says, I want you to rule my enemies with me, why would you not run to him for safety? What are, you, what are you afraid of? And William Cooper said, it doesn't matter what our enemies are, whether they're thousands in number, whether they have all the power in the world, whether they're cruel like dragons, sneaky like serpents. Stronger is he that is in us than those who are against us. In Christ Jesus our Lord, we are more than conquerors. You know how this has played out in the history of the church? Just, I'll end with this story. It's my One of my heroes of the faith is John Patton, a missionary to cannibals in the 19th century. And the first island he was at, he was constantly running for his life as these cannibals tried to work up the nerve to kill him. They were plotting. They didn't want him there. They want to hear about the resurrected Lord who loved them. And so there was this one specific time where he writes in his journal and says, Outside of my house I was surrounded. They had muskets. They had bows and arrows, they had spears, and I walked out of my house and stood right in front of them. And he said, at this point my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus, and I saw him watching over the whole scene. And this peace came to me like a wave from God, and I realized that I was immortal until Jesus' work with me was done. And so there'd be no musket fired No arrow loosed, no quivering spear would ever leave the hand of these savages apart from the will of God my Father. Because this Jesus Christ, whose power is in all heaven and all earth, he rules all nature, and he can even restrain the savage of the South Seas. See that? So what are you afraid of? This king is not safe, but he's good. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Come to him and you'll hear God laugh in heaven celebrating at your repentance with the angels. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory.